You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, church. How you guys doing? Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. I like happy better. Reminds me of... Uh, British people or Harry Potter or something like that. Um, you can also say Merry Xmas. I learned that actually in Greek, X is the abbreviation for Christ, so you're not actually taking Christ out of Christmas when you say Merry Xmas. Uh, don't tell Fox News that. Um, but what we're going to do today, we're going to take a look at Advent. Again, we're doing a little short mini-series on the Christmas story, and I'm going to take a look at a kind of overlooked part of the Christmas story, and that is the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. And there is a lot of uh, text to read today, so we'll be in Luke 1. It should be on the screen. I'm just going to dive into it, and hopefully you guys don't fall asleep because I'll be reading for a while. But start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God and when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense." There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will, be fi- he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering what his delay was in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And they kept making signs to them, he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when the time of his service ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Skip to verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." Skip to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. 
And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, his name shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that he the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Wow, that was long. I need a nap. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you that you entered into your own creation, that you became human to rescue and to save us. And God, I pray that this morning, as we look at the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, that you would be here, that you would be in this place. God, I've never really done anything like this before and and I believe that you're gonna use me, but God, I also pray that you get me out of the way so that your spirit can move in the hearts and the minds and the souls of everyone in here. So God, thank you, we love you, amen. So our culture is really terrible at waiting. We're terrible at it, we value speed, over pretty much anything else. We think that speed is good and slow is bad. And we think we don't actually have to wait for anything, right? We actually feel entitled to, wait, to not wait for anything. Think about how infuriating it is when your iPhone doesn't load fast enough, right? You're just automatically annoyed. Or think about, and I deal with this on a daily basis, going down Geary, and you're going, the speed limit, you're going 25 miles an hour, which as an aside, it's ridiculous that the busiest street in my neck of the woods has no time lights and it's 25 mile an hour speed limit. But anyway, you're going 25 miles an hour and you really wanna be going the five to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit that's socially acceptable, right? And so you're like trying to gauge based on the back of a driver's head which lane you should go in so that you can actually go a little bit faster. Or think about going home for the holidays and a lot of you guys are gonna fly, right? As soon as that plane gets delayed, the entire terminal lets out a groan, right? Because you just don't want to have to wait for anything. I personally, I'm terrible at waiting. I've been battling Comcast for about the last month because my internet every night just goes a lot slower. And the main reason, if I'm really honest, the main reason why I want my internet to go faster is because I really want to play nine-year-olds at Halo online. And I don't want to have to wait to do that, which is probably the saddest sentence I've ever said. But I'm just being honest. I'm trying to be vulnerable up here. Um, we're culturally conditioned to hate waiting. And when it comes to Christmas, specifically, we really are terrible at waiting for it. We can't wait for it to come or we can't wait for it to be over, depending on, on who you are in this room. We can't even wait for December anymore to celebrate it and to begin buying gifts for it. We actually have to do it on Thanksgiving, not even after Thanksgiving. Black Friday is now Black Thursday. Um, 
we actually pepper spray each other and beat each other up for a toaster or for towels before our Thanksgiving meals. Did you guys know that the number one best-selling thing at Walmart this year was a set of towels for like $1.50? And people actually got in fights and violently assaulted each other to get towels, which is just insane. When you're a kid, if you're anything like me when it came to Christmas, you woke up at 5 a.m. and you dragged your poor parents out of bed so that you didn't have to wait sleeping anymore. You could just get to Christmas. And yet, the entire Christmas story, the story that I spent three hours reading just now, it seemed like, is full of people that are waiting, right? You have Zachariah and Elizabeth, they've waited their entire marriage for a child that at this point doesn't look like is ever going to come because they're too old. When Zachariah enters the temple, all the other priests and the people are left outside waiting and wondering what is taking him so long. Elizabeth goes in solitude for five months after she becomes pregnant and she waits for her child to come. Zachariah has to wait nine months to be, to be able to speak again. Zachariah and Elizabeth's friends and neighbors, once they find out that Elizabeth is pregnant, they have to wait until this child comes so they can rejoice. And then after he's born, they say, what then will this child be? And they have to wait another 30 years until John actually bursts onto the scene and begins his public ministry at the age of 30 or somewhere around there. And at this time, all of Israel is waiting for the Messiah that they believe was coming at any moment. Everyone in this story is waiting. I think the Christmas season, Advent, and the Christmas story is an invitation for us to wait as well. It's an invitation for us to slow down in the midst of a culture and a world that tells us, especially during the holidays, that we need to speed up. And I think there's three main ways that we're going to look at that Advent and this story encourages us to wait. It encourages us to wait on the past, to wait on the future, and to wait in the present. So waiting on the past, what does that mean? It's kind of a weird thing. How do you wait on something that's already happened? Well, if you guys are new today or if you just aren't that familiar with the Bible or if you're anything like me and the Bible kind of intimidates you because it's kind of thick and big and there's a lot of different stories in it, you should know that at its core, the Bible tells the story of God. It's pretty simple. It tells the story of God and it tells the story of his salvation history. What I mean by that is the history of God's interactions with his creation, with his world, creating it, communicating with it, rescuing it, redeeming it, saving it. And we tend to view history as a very linear thing, right? There's a beginning and there's an end and we are somewhere on that line and we are moving towards the end. There's no way of really stopping that. And there's truth in that. But what's interesting is the way the Bible tells the history of God is actually a little bit more cyclical than linear. Paula Gooder, in her really, really excellent book on Advent called The Meaning is in the Waiting that I'll quote a couple times, puts it like this. Salvation history is not so much linear as cyclical. The telling of the history of God's interactions with the world is probably best likened to a snowball if that image is not too odd. Imagine making a snowball at the top of a hill and pushing it to make it roll down the hill to the bottom. As the snowball descends, it rolls round and round, picking up more snow as it goes. The snowball is still the same, though it gets larger as it rolls. Salvation history is a little bit like this. God's interventions in the world are regarded as similar events, if not the same one. Each time this occurs, God's act of salvation picks up another resonance or expression. So let me give you guys an example of this, because that's kind of a confusing idea. So in the middle of this story of God, in the middle of the Bible, there's a collection of songs written by a bunch of different songwriters called the Psalms. And these songs uh, are often written from a place of distress. The songwriter is in trouble, and he is writing and asking God, writing these lyrics that are asking God to come and save him. And a lot of times, the 
salvation that he's waiting for, he describes in terms of events that have already happened in the past. So Psalm 77, which should be on the screen, um, I'm gonna skip around a little bit in, in this psalm, but it starts like this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Down to verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured forth water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were were unseen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Adam. So verse one through three, the psalmist, the songwriter, he's in distress. He needs God to come and to rescue him, to bring salvation into whatever situation he's in. And it's not, I don't really know, it's not really clear. So he remembers God's works of old. He remembers the ways in which God has saved in the past. In this case, it's the story of God rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea. And he anticipates that God is going to act in the midst of his distress in a similar way. He waits on the past. Jews saw themselves as part of this ever-growing snowball of God's history. And so in moments where they're waiting for God's salvation, they describe it in terms of events that have already happened. And so we see this in the Zechariah and Gabriel interaction, right? So Gabriel comes and he speaks to Zechariah. And Zechariah, at that moment, being a good priest who was familiar with the stories of old, would have been aware that somehow the promise of God that he and all of Israel had been waiting for, for this coming Messiah, was going to be fulfilled. And that, like he did in the Exodus story, like he did with King David, like he did in the Psalms, like he did through the prophets, that God was going to act similarly again in the present in ways that he had in the past. This is why when Zechariah is holding his newborn son, when he's holding John, and he's describing God's coming Messiah, he uses the picture of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He says, basically, God, you are faithful to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember your holy covenant, the oath that you swore to our father Abraham. He remembers God's faithfulness in the past, and he waits for God's salvation to come again. And so for us today, Waiting on the past, what that looks like, means remembering and retelling the story of God's salvation history, the stories that the Bible tells, and recognizing that we are all now a part of that story. We're all Zechariah, we are all Elizabeth, we are all of Israel. When we wait and we long for moments like in the past where God saved, when we wait for those moments to come in our present. And we do this pretty consistently. We probably do this more than you realize. I have a really good friend who I've known for a long time that I've known since high school, basically. And he became a Christian in college. He started to have a relationship with Jesus and, and Jesus changed his life. And in talking to him now, uh, one of the things that is hard for him that's on his mind and on his heart a lot is his family. And his family, he has uh, multiple brothers and sisters and uh, his parents, they don't know God except for one sister who has a relationship with Jesus. And it's really hard for him to believe that God could break into his family's life. They seem so far away. They seem really closed off to the idea of God. They even seem to hate God. And I think a lot of us in here can probably relate to that. We all, I know I have family and friends that I want nothing more than to experience the life-changing love of 
of Christ. Um, but there are times when my friend is talking and he's feeling discouraged where he remembers how his sister, the one sister he has that's a follower of Jesus, he remembers that she was once similarly closed off to God, that she actually used to hate God. And in college, when he became a Christian, he began to pray just a simple prayer, God, would you save my sister? Would you break into her life and change her life the way you changed mine? And God did. God did that. She came to know Jesus. And when he remembers this, it gives him hope to continue waiting and to continue praying and to continue trusting that the same God who broke into his life and who broke into his sister's life can one day break into his family's life. He waits on the past. And as we wait on the past during the Christmas season, the story that we tell and we remember is the story of God entering into his own creation as Jesus to save it. And we wait for him to enter into and interact with our world around us today, with our city today, with our family today, with our friends today. We wait for him to bring salvation in a similar way. We wait on the past. But we don't just wait on the past, we also wait on the future. And waiting on the future is, I think, a little bit easier to understand because it's not here yet, so we're always waiting for it. Uh, But there's a couple nuances to what it means to wait on the future, I think. The first is that waiting on the future, it always waits for the promise of something to come. It waits for the promise of God for something more. In order to wait, we have to have something to wait for. Henry Nouwen puts it like this. He says, waiting, as we see it in the people on the first pages of the gospel, is waiting with a sense of promise. Zachariah, your wife Elizabeth, is to bear you a son. Mary, listen, you are to conceive and bear a son. People who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They have received something that is at work in them, like a seed that has started to grow. This is very important. We can only really wait if what we are waiting for has already begun. So waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It's always a movement from something to something more. And we see this kind of waiting in Zechariah's prophecy as he's holding his son, where he's anticipating that in the future, soon, the Messiah is going to come and that his son's actually going to prepare the way to rescue and redeem all of Israel. That's the hope and the promise that God had given his people. That's what they were waiting for. And so in verse 68 and 69, Zechariah says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He speaks not only as as if this is going to happen, but as if it's already beginning to happen. For us, waiting on the future means that we anticipate the promise that God has given us. And the promise that he's given us, post-resurrection of Jesus, is that Jesus is going to one day return. Dave talked about this a few weeks back in his really good series on heaven and on new bodies and on resurrection. Our future hope is that Jesus is going to come back, that he's going to make all wrongs right, that he's going to make all things new, that he's going to bring heaven and earth together, that we're going to get glorified, resurrected bodies, which is something that is so insane to think about. I don't even really know where to begin, but I would suggest going and listening to Dave's sermon on new bodies. Um, But what we are looking forward to is the day where Jesus comes back and we, followers of Jesus, get to spend eternity in a place where God's will is always done and where his love and his presence are totally and completely all-encompassing forever. Waiting on the future, the other nuance to waiting on the future is that it's always an active waiting. It's never a passive waiting where you sit around in a dentist's office and wait for them to call your name and you read an entertainment weekly from like nine months ago. It's not that kind of passive waiting, it's actually a very active waiting. 
Again, Henry Nouwen puts it like this. Most of us think of waiting as something very passive, a hopeless state determined by events totally out of our hands. But there is none of this passivity in scripture. Those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know that what they are waiting for is growing from the ground on which they are standing. Active waiting means to be fully present to the moment in the conviction that something is happening where you are and that you want to be present to it. So here's a really, really silly example. I, like some of you in here, love to play fantasy football. Um, I don't even really like football. I don't have a favorite football team. I vaguely root for the 49ers because I live in San Francisco, although they're moving to Santa Clara, so I don't really know who I'm going to root for anymore. Um, But I really enjoy playing fantasy football, and I get pretty into it. I have a couple leagues that I play uh, with different groups of friends. And when the season ends, my life somehow goes on. Um, But in the off-season, I begin to wait for the coming new season. Maybe a couple of months before the off-season Uh, Before the season starts, I will actually begin to read articles and do research and listen to podcasts, which is really embarrassing, about how I should draft in my fantasy football league that isn't even here yet. I do fake drafts where I practice drafting so that on the day the season starts, I'm ready for it. Um, I was talking to this, uh, I was talking about this with my wife and she put it this way. You do fake practice drafts for your fake stupid draft in your fake stupid make-believe football league, which is quite an indictment on the fantasy football industry in America. And she's probably right, actually. But what I'm doing is I'm actively waiting in the off-season so that when the season starts, I'm ready for it. That's so dumb. (laughs) I feel really embarrassed, actually. For us to wait actively today, what that looks like for us today is that we pray for God's will to be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven, just like Jesus prayed. And being led by the Spirit in our daily lives, we live out the love of Jesus. We obey God's will, and by doing that, we actually, what we do, it's kind of weird, but we bring little moments of that coming future into our present reality. And T. Wright says it this way, What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, I would add making apps, working in finance, cooking, working a trade, loving your coworkers, friends, family, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of this will last into God's future. In a way that's mysterious and that I don't fully understand, when we live out God's will in our daily lives, in the world around us, in the city around us, it gives us a glimpse of what our future hope will be. And it brings a little bit of that future into our reality. So think about what happens with Elizabeth and Zachariah, right? After John the Baptist is born, after John's born. There's still 30 years before John actually begins his ministry, which means that they had to parent him and raise him. My guess is just because they had this promise from God that John was going to be the prophet to prepare the way of the Messiah, they didn't just say, okay, well, John, God's given you this promise, so go ahead and take care of yourself. They probably parented him as best they could. They lived their daily lives trying to trust God and to walk blamelessly and righteously with him. Zechariah just continued to be a priest and to be faithful to that vocation and calling. Elizabeth tried the best she could to be a mother and the matriarch of that family. And they probably didn't do it perfectly, but they did it faithfully. And what they were doing was they were actively waiting for the time when this Messiah would come and John would prepare the way for him. They waited on the future. Which brings us to waiting in the present. And this is the last point, and this is where I want to spend the most time. One of the really interesting parts, (coughs) excuse me, 
of the Zachariah and Elizabeth story is how differently they both react to the promise of God, that they're going to have a son and that this son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Elizabeth, on the one hand, totally accepts this promise at face value and believes and doesn't doubt, but Zachariah doubts. One of the great little details, I think, of this story that's implied but not really stated is how did Zachariah communicate this vision that he had of Gabriel and the temple to Elizabeth when he couldn't speak and he probably couldn't hear. That's why when John's born, they say uh, the people have to make signs to him, like, what do you want your baby to be called? He can't hear and he can't speak. So how does he communicate this? Well, uh, he either had to charade out everything to Elizabeth, which I don't know how you charade that you saw an angel, and then this angel t- told you that the Messiah is coming, that your uh, wife, who is well past childbearing years, is going to have a child. I have no idea how you would communicate that. Or he had to write it all out, and that probably took a really long time, too. And that's a really uh, useless detail, but I think it's fun to think about. I like thinking about uh, useless details like that. I know that uh, in, in Harry Potter, so I was reading Harry Potter recently, and um, there in, in the last book, Harry goes to visit his parents' grave. Spoiler alert, they're dead. They were killed by Voldemort. Um, but on, on the grave is written a verse from 1 Corinthians. It says, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. And when I read that, I immediately started to think and like follow all these rabbit trails in my mind of what is this reality where there's magic and wizards and Jesus and the New Testament? Like, how does that work? Like, is Jesus still the savior of, of wizards, even though wizards can do magic? Like, does that cancel each other out? Like, I have no idea. And I was talking to my wife about this, and she said, what, what are you talking about? Just read the story and be present in the story. Stop thinking about these things that aren't real and don't matter. And she's, she's, she was right, like she usually is. Regardless, yeah, amen, that's true. Regardless of how Zachariah explains to Elizabeth all that Gabriel had told him, when she hears it, she believes. Nothing in Luke's account suggests that Elizabeth doubts at all. One commentator put it this way, her open-handed acceptance of God's intervention on her behalf contrasts sharply with her husband's hesitation and unbelief. The text says that she goes and she spends five months alone, hidden. No one's really sure why. No one's really sure why she goes for five months and hides herself. Some people think that because at that time, being barren was such a publicly shameful thing for a woman. Um, Actually, at that time, people thought that God was punishing you if you couldn't have children as a woman. Um, Some people think that she went away for five months so that when she came back, she would be showing and that public shame would be reversed into public honor and joy. Um, But regardless of why she went, my guess is during that time, all she did was wait in the presence of God and converse with God and communicate with God and talk to God and reflect on the fact that the baby growing in her womb was an absolute reflection of God's presence with her and God's love for her and the fact that God answers prayers. When Mary comes to visit and the Spirit causes John to leap in Elizabeth's womb, And as someone who has never, to my knowledge, been pregnant, nor will I ever be pregnant, I can't imagine what it would feel like to have your baby jump in your womb. It probably feels really weird. Um, But regardless, what you get in that moment is a picture of a woman so completely enveloped in the presence of God that her own child is full of the Holy Spirit. She's completely in the presence of God. But Zachariah's response is totally different. Zachariah does not accept what God says at face value. He doubts and he says, how shall I know this? And God actually punishes him for his unbelief. 
Gabriel says, because you did not believe my words, you will be silent and unable to speak until your son is born. Is born. And to me, this is one of the most confusing and frustrating moments in the entire story. Why? Why did God punish Zechariah? It seems really unfair to me. Think about it. Gabriel gives Zechariah the incredible news that not only is this Messiah coming, but your son is going to prepare the way for him. Your prayers have been answered. This should be a really joyous thing, but Zechariah's response is not joyful. It's, how shall I know this? And the tone there is, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I don't believe you. And it's a question that comes from a place of really deep pain. Think about all that goes into that question. Zechariah and Elizabeth probably spent countless nights praying for a child that just never came. Years and years and decades and decades went by, and this prayer goes unanswered. Think about the deep pain and loss they must have experienced every year and every decade where Elizabeth didn't have a child. Think about every passive-aggressive conversation that they had with family and friends and neighbors where they asked, when is Elizabeth going to have a son? When is Elizabeth going to have a child? Think about every bitter, sweet moment when someone else that they knew became pregnant. And they wanted to be happy for them, but all it did was reopen the most painful wound in their life. Think about whenever it was, they just stopped praying for a child because they were too old. That was a tragedy. Think about every feeling of disappointment with God, every frustration, every feeling of anger and suffering and worthlessness and self-loathing. That's what's behind his question of how then shall I know this. All of a sudden, the most painful reality of the entirety of Zachariah's marriage is brought to the surface and the promise of the single most important moment in Israel's history is overshadowed by a flood of unanswered prayers by a reopening of the most painful part of his entire life. So of course, Zechariah would say, how then shall I know this? And of course, his tone would be, yeah, right. To me, when I read that, I see him being honest and open and vulnerable with his doubt and bringing it before God, and I see God punishing him by making him mute. And when I first read that, guys, it really pissed me off. It really did. It seems really unfair. If I was in Zechariah's shoes, I probably would have said the exact same thing, just a little bit angrier. I probably would have sworn a little bit more. Um, and in some ways, I can relate to Zachariah, not totally, um, but Alex and I have shared uh, from, from this stage the struggle that we've had with Alex's health and uh, how she is in discomfort and pain almost every single day, and there's not really anything doctors can do to this point. No one really knows what's going on. And so... I, I can understand what it's like to pray prayers for your wife that don't go answered for years. And I'm not equating the pain of not being able to have children with the pain that Alex and I are going through. They're very different situations and different realities, but I think I can relate in some ways. And as I was praying through this sermon today, as I was reading this story over and over again, and as I was bringing that frustration and honestly anger to God, one of the things that occurred to me was that maybe it wasn't actually a punishment. Maybe God causing Zechariah to be silent wasn't a punishment, but it was actually an invitation and a gift. I think it was a gift of forcibly shutting Zechariah up. And it was an invitation to Zechariah to converse with God over the course of nine months. As Zechariah waited for his son to be born and for his voice to return, the only person that he could actually have a conversation with was God. He couldn't speak, he could make signs and he could write things down, but he couldn't actually have a conversation with anyone except God. 
he's given nine months to wrestle with his doubt, to wrestle with his, all of the baggage and pain and uh, suffering that he has when it comes to this area of his life. He's given nine months to bring all of that to God, all of that excitement even and anticipation and wondering if this promise is actually gonna come true. He's given nine months to speak with God. And at the end of it, when his son is born and his voice returns, the first thing that Zachariah says isn't, oh, I can talk again. It's not even my son. It's blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. For Zechariah, there was something, something about waiting during that time with God that took his unbelief and turned it into worship. It reset and it reoriented his entire life around the God that he waited with. And I think Advent does a similar thing for us today. Advent invites us to remember the ever-growing story of God's salvation, and it reminds us that God is still at work in our world if we would look, that we're all now a part of that story. Advent invites us to wait and actively anticipate the coming time when Jesus returns to remove death and sin and evil forever and to bring heaven and earth together. But most importantly, Advent reminds us that in all things, Jesus waits with us. Advent reminds us that as we wait in our day-to-day lives for so many things, and even though we hate waiting and we're bad at it, we have to wait for everything. Whether it's Christmas to come, Christmas to be over, to get married, to have children, for a new job, for a busy time of life to be over, for your family and friends who don't know Jesus to come to know him, for suffering to end, we wait to move, we wait for a relationship, we wait for healing, and some of us even wait for death. That in all things, Jesus waits with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, like Dave preached last week. Paula Gooder, in her really, again, good book, The Meaning is in the Waiting, puts it like this. It is in Jesus Christ that we discover the perfect fulfillment of everything for which we have waited, as well as for those things we have not waited Jesus brings both completion and surprise to our waiting and points us forward to a lifelong waiting that can only find fulfillment in the end of all things. Perhaps most surprising of all, however, is the discovery that one, the one for whom we wait has been present all along, silently waiting with us in joy as well as in sorrow, in delight as well as in agony, drawing us further into the glorious paradox of God who summons us to wait for that which has already happened and to remember that which is still to come. The beauty of the Christmas story, the beauty of Zachariah and Elizabeth's story, the beauty of the whole of God's ever-growing salvation history and story is that waiting with and being with Jesus is enough. It's enough. And it's more than enough. It's actually the whole point. It's the whole point. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who waits with us. That you're the God who entered into our world and experienced the pain and the joy of life and that you died for us, that you came back to life for us so that our relationship with you could be new. Thank you that in all things you are with us and that you invite us to slow down in the midst of a really busy time. And God, I pray that right now as we leave this place and we go to a lot of times stressful family situations or lonely situations, that you would be with us and that we would know that you are indeed Emmanuel, God, with us.
And God, as we worship right now, would your spirit come and fall in this place and remind every heart in this room that you love them and you care for them and that you died for them and that you want nothing more than to have a time to be with that person. Jesus, thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.